0: Open your Bibles please to Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah's account has 13 chapters and by the sixth chapter, the wall is built. If you're good with fractions, you understand that is less than 50%. What's left in the story? As with Ezra, the temple is built at the end of chapter six. Both building projects end by the sixth chapter. Ezra still has 40% of his book left. Nehemiah still has 56% or so left of his book. What more is there to say? Ezra is the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah is the story of the rebuilding of the wall. The temple is built, there's still more story. The wall is built, there's still more story. That's the question that is being raised in this chapter. I would draw your attention this evening to what the Holy Spirit has in this chapter. And again, I want to be open with you and say, I preached a series through this book 10 years ago. I skipped chapter seven except for one line in my sermon on chapter eight. I mentioned and covered this entire chapter with one line. And the line that was in my notes was, chapter seven records... A list of names that is found in Ezra chapter 2. That was it. Now I'm rereading, restudying, repraying. And I want to tell you there is a message here in the 7th chapter. Even though beginning in verse 6. Down to the end of the chapter. It is almost word for word From Ezra chapter 2. So I'll begin this evening by covering verse 6 to the end of the chapter simply by saying this. It is a list of names of people who came from Babylon back to Jerusalem. 42,000 of them. It's recorded in the book of Ezra. But I would draw your attention to a few differences. First of all, a few of the names and a few of the numbers are different. John MacArthur says they are different because perhaps in Ezra, they had promised to come, but by the time they actually left, some of them changed their mind and did not keep their vow. Perhaps that's why. We don't know why, but we do know there were multiple lists made of the people that left Babylon and came back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah includes one of those lists. So this list is 90 years old. The current population at the time of Nehemiah would have been traced back or traceable back 90 years. And that's the reason the list is here. We'll see when we get down to verse 5 in our study this evening that Nehemiah has this list. Because he wants to trace back and find out the population and who the citizens are. That is a majority of the chapter. But the main message of the chapter is in verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. It is to those four verses that I draw your attention this evening. Less than a year has passed since Nehemiah heard from his brother Hanani. I came back from Jerusalem. He met with Nehemiah. And he told him, well, the temple's being built. The population is increasing. But this society is not flourishing. That had been the goal when Cyrus gave the decree in Ezra chapter 1, 90 years earlier in 538 B.C., He gave that decree because he wanted to rebuild the society. And he said, I am moved by Jehovah. He was prophesied by Isaiah many years earlier. And what God vows, he always keeps. So God raises up a pagan emperor who is the most powerful in the world, twists his heart and causes him to pay for it as well. As you'll remember from our study of previous weeks, That's going to happen four times over these 90 years. It is nothing to God to change the heart of a president. Do you pray for your president? It is commanded in 1 Timothy 2. Do you believe that God can turn the heart of the United Nations or of any individual president? He can do it. And we pray to that end. And we have the promise in Psalm 72... That the kings of the earth will bow down and lick the dust. There's coming a time when their faces will all be in front of King Jesus. And we have to pray for that. It's happened four times already in history. But Nehemiah is a government official with a good job and connections. And in the space of a few months, Nehemiah decides, you know, what is my life worth? If I've got a good job and I'm pulling in a good salary and I've got a good bank account and I'm pretty much as comfortable as you can be. But God's people are not flourishing. And that's the theme of the whole book. Rebuilding a godly society. And what we learned in chapter 5, when Nehemiah sacrifices from his own bank account and says, I won't take government funds. I'm gonna give from my own bank account. We learned the people of God deserve the highest priority. And that would be for us today, the church. The church deserves the highest priority. Our children ought to know is the number one concern of our lives. Nehemiah six last week, we studied that remarkable chapter and we learned In that chapter, that we need need to be discerning, we need to be wise, wise as serpents and harmless as doves, because even though you're dedicating yourself to something as good as the people of God, there are going to be many tricksters from outside and from inside, and if you're not discerning and wise, you will be tricked and all of your best efforts, and all of your gifts of money will be wasted. And you'll say, yes, but I gave so much. I gave my life. You gave it in a foolish cause, and you did not discern the will of the Lord. That's what's happened to many people in the Catholic Church. They call themselves Christians. They may give their lives and their time and their money wasted to a false religion. And here tonight we have chapter seven, And we have to ask ourselves, what is happening when the wall is done? That means we're defeated. What is there more? Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass when the wall was built that I ended my work and went back to Babylon. Period. Book's done. No, it's not. I had set up the doors, the gatekeepers. The singers, the Levites were appointed. Everyone was appointed. That's the background. And here's the main point of the message tonight. Nehemiah cannot rest if there is security, if there's management to be done. If there are details left undone, Nehemiah does not rest. A good worker goes until Every detail is finished. That's Nehemiah. And all of the details in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, and in the list, the reason this list is included is for this purpose. Security. Risk management. Ladies, after all this preaching about take risks, are you glad to hear a sermon that's all about risk management? The message tonight can be summarized in these words. After success, security must be maintained. That's the whole message of this chapter. Success has been accomplished. The wall's been built. But if you don't maintain security, you're going to find that you lose everything you brought in. As 3 John says, guard yourselves so that you do not lose what you have already secured. Keep on guard. Does this not apply tonight to those who've been converted? You've been born again. You've been justified. If you don't guard, the Song of Solomon says, the little foxes that spoil the vine will come to cause great problems. And since we've quoted Song of Solomon, let's go to marriage. You're married. If you don't guard and build up every kind of risk, they will come in and attack you. Very recently, I've had to deal with problems that came in because I did not guard. And I talked to my boys about this today. Boys, I want you to know your father messed up on this point. He did not guard. And you watch it because if you don't guard, it's going to come in and ruin. Let's look tonight at these four verses that give us five points because verse two, verse three has two. So there's one in verse two, two in verse three, one in verse four, and one in verse five. Verse two, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, two different people, the ruler of the palace, or depending on your translation, the governor of the castle, or the leader of the fortress, the commander of the citadel. Depending on your translation, all of those work. The commander, the leader, the ruler, the governor of the fortress, the palace, the castle, the citadel, I gave them charge over Jerusalem because Hananiah was a faithful man and feared God above many. What is the first thing Nehemiah does when the wall is built? He doesn't take a lengthy vacation. He does not build a private swimming pool. He does not look for safety for himself or comfort for himself. He does not say, now it's time to take that government pension that was justly mine that I give up for those years. He says instead, let me reduce my authority. Let me cut back my official honor. I have been in this position of honor. Let me remove myself from that position. Because there's someone better. Hananiah. He had been the ruler of the fortress. He's a military leader. Who am I? I, I'm a government bureaucrat. I sit at a desk. He says, sure, I have lots of initiative. That's Nehemiah. I have lots of initiative and I fear God and I love God. Those are important. But if there's a man who can do the job better, let me put him in, play, in the place. No interest in personal aggrandizement. His interest is the success of the people of God. Oh, to see a pastor who finds a young man better than him and says, why don't, why don't you come and preach more? My only goal is that the church would be strong, my prayers that my sons would pass me, my prayers that Tulani would pass me. Nehemiah says, "Let me rather find a faithful leader." And there's three marks that I want in this faithful leader: competence. He's the ruler of the fortress. He's already been doing a good job in a security position. I'm looking for competence. Today, our world is insane. Because ultimately, Satan wants to destroy security in every country. He has every country blindly following equity, diversity, and inclusion. Equity, diversity, and inclusion. And they say through that, that, that we need to make sure there is a certain number of women And a certain number of sodomites. And a certain number of every group included. Are there bushmen included? Are there illegal immigrants included? What we should be asking is, what is the purpose of this group? Who is most competent? Nehemiah looks for competence. He doesn't care if you are a black, transgender fat woman his goal is are you competent i spoke earlier with his brother who said yeah at work it's frustrating because they put people in positions of leadership not because they're skilled at the position but because well they have this mark or they have that mark isn't racism judging people based on external marks isn't that what racism is I thought we look and say, well, that's a sharp guy. He's an honest, hardworking man. Let's give him the job. Or that's a sharp, hardworking, thoughtful woman. Let's give her the job. Not anymore. You only get the job if you're Kosa or Zulu or this or that. If some external mark is true about you, something you can't change about yourself, that's insanity. And it is a sure way to make sure load shedding increases. Potholes increase. And our children's test scores go down. Nehemiah doesn't care about any of those things. We don't have listed in verse 2 any external marks. How tall was Hananiah? Was he good at sports? We don't have any of these foolish things. We know this. Hananiah was a man who controlled the fortress wisely. Number two, what do we know about him in verse 2? He was faithful. An honest man of integrity. He didn't lie. You could leave the money with him and it would all be there when you came back to take an audit. He wouldn't steal. He wouldn't lie. What's the third trait we know about this man? He feared God. He feared God. I'll tell you, those are the three things we need in any government official. We do not need when someone is up to run for president, they say, well, has he had experience at the provincial level? Well, has he had experience in politics? Oh, this one has had 22 years of experience. That's actually a negative factor in my estimation. What I want to know is, is this person honest, hardworking, do they live by principle? I would gladly vote For an honest, hardworking person, regardless of the skin color or their language group. I want someone who's honest, fears God, and competent for their position. Because at the end of the day, we all have to drive on the roads and go to the hospitals and clinics. And have electricity or sit in the dark. Or have criminals break into our homes. One of the reasons that woman is leaving her home is she said... She's had people break into her home twice in the last month while she was there with children. They threatened her, so she gave them what she had. She said, I lost my phone because they threatened me. and What can I do? I'm just a small woman with little children. Why isn't the government worrying about getting protection to her rather than having whatever else? These should be the qualifications. If you have any opportunity to influence the people of God, the church of God, then you need to choose leaders that fear God, that are faithful, and that are competent. That should be whom you choose. And you need to look for that in godly pastors, in godly elders, and in godly husbands. Let us train our daughters not to fall in love. When is it ever good to fall? The fall, I'll remind you, is, is a mark of when the whole world went into sin. Let's raise our daughters so that they would choose wisely. Men who are competent, fear God, and are honest. That's why I want to marry my daughter, and I don't care at all about the skin color. You give me someone who's faithful, fears God, and is competent, He can take my daughter. And no one who who fails those criterion can. Number two, verse three. And I said unto them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while men are standing by, let them shut the doors and bar them. Ah, control the gates. Guard who's going to come in. Cities are weakest at their gates. They weren't worried about the wall, it now being three or four or five meters high. They know very few threats are gonna come through that wall. Houses are in the wall. We can guard the wall pretty easily now. The danger is going to be the gates. Those gates can't be opened until, number one, the darkness is gone. Darkness gives opportunity for criminals We don't open too early. Why? Because we're short-staffed. Maybe we could have 24 hours service at the Jerusalem gate if we had a standing army, but we don't. So wait until the sun is up because darkness gives criminals anonymity. In scripture, darkness is commonly connected with sin. In heaven, there will be no more night. In Jude, demons are kept bound in chains under darkness. In fact, darkness is a mark of hell. And one of the pains of hell is that the darkness may be felt. Can you imagine a darkness that is so dark it hurt? 1 John 1, verse 5 says, There is no darkness in God, which is why there can be no night in heaven. And there's no need of sun in heaven because the Lamb is the sun. In fact, sins are called the works of darkness in Ephesians 5, verse 11, and Christians must come out of darkness. And that makes it very clear. The light darkness motif of the Bible tells us light is the way Christians live. It's a new way of life. It's a new lifestyle, or if you will, it's a new culture. We had been studying that for months, maybe 16 or 17 sermons into a study of godly culture, sanctification, sanctification a Christian culture. Someday when Nehemiah is done, we might go back to that one, but my son is pressing me to go on in Esther. And then after Esther, what? Minor prophets? Darkness and light are two clearly distinguished realms. So they say, no, we don't want any darkness. And then number two, look in verse three, only open the gates when there are watchers there. So the gates not only have to be Opened when darkness is gone, but when men are there to guard. People, humans, don't want not just dogs, don't give us security cameras, want real live people who can make decisions. Number three, in verse three, while they're standing by, they must shut the doors and lock them. That is, whenever the doors are closed, they have to be completely locked. So it'll be very clear, doors are closed equals doors are locked. So that we never accidentally get to a point where as happened in my house on Friday night, I came out just to check and found my front security door and front door completely open, unlocked. Better lock that up. Well, here's what they're going to do in Jerusalem. Anytime the gates are closed, they're locked. So we never have to worry. Sun up, gates open. Sun down, gates closed and locked. All together at one point. What's the point there? What's the lesson? We're going to guard carefully. We're going to put these, these controls in order so that we can control whatever comes in. And we're going to be meticulous about the opening of our gates So that we will be very clear about what's coming in. What does that mean for the church? It means the elders need to watch very carefully. Who's going to preach at the church? The elders need to watch very carefully what kind of songs are used in the church. What musical styles are allowed in the church? What kind of culture is promoted in the church? That means for a family, the father has to wisely guard What clothing styles are allowed in my home? What kind of language is allowed by my children? What kind of loves and fears and angers are allowed in my children? We need to guard carefully. And of course, this reminds us of what? John Bunyan's holy war. What a story. Five gates, the city of man's soul. And the gates have to be guarded very carefully So that we can't let anything extra in. We've got to know exactly what's in. And when they weren't guarding, in came Diabolos and ruined Mansoul. Security measures, Nehemiah says. Let's first of all get a good man in charge of things. Let's secondly put some rules at the gate, some policies and procedures to make sure that gate is guarded at all times. Reminds us of Solomon giving advice to his son when he said to his little boy, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, keep your heart with all diligence. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Why? Because from that heart are all the big matters in the world. Guard that heart. If you don't guard that heart, you're going to see yourself failing. Keep your heart with all diligence. Rehoboam did not listen. Listen. Because when Rehoboam was in his young 20s, he turned away. He did not guard his heart as his father told him. And perhaps he did not guard his heart because his father, after giving that advice, opened the doors to his own heart. Number three, in verse three. And appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch. Everyone over against his own house. You need to choose guards with three requirements. Number one, they are faithful citizens of the city that they are guarding. That's in verse three. Picks people from Jerusalem who are living inside Jerusalem. If you pick people from outside, they're not going to care what goes on inside. They're going to care less because they have no, here's the phrase, skin in the game. What does that phrase mean? Skin in the game. It means if you're not playing rugby, if you're outside watching other guys get hit, you might tell them to do the, ah, run there, jump there, do that. But if you're actually in the game knowing, if I go there, I'm going to get hurt. Or if I go there, I'm going to lose the game. If you're actually invested in the adventure, you'll be much more careful about what you do. You see, that's why government makes foolish decisions. Government makes foolish decisions because they have no skin in the game. If they hire someone foolish in Limpopo province to fix a road and three months later the road is destroyed, what do they care? They got no skin in the game. They did the upgrade just before the elections. They got in again. They're good for another five years. It doesn't matter if you have to drive. Oh, 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 what did you say? What did you say there? Oh, another wheel bearing to replace? Another control arm? Wow, I'm getting, everyone knows me at Castings because I'm buying spares there so much. They're not going to mind. They have no skin in the game. They're still sitting in their nice places far away, which is why government needs to be as close to the people as possible. Why? Skin in the game. Nehemiah says, pick people who are living inside the city because those people inside the city have little kids inside the city and they're not going to let anything inside the gates that's going to damage their little three-year-old. But someone outside the gate might say, ah, Well, you know that guy came in, he looked pretty bad, but oh well. My time's off, my shift's over, talk to you guys later. Yeah, what about the criminal who just came in? It's not my kid. No skin in the game. Number two, they're willing to stay by their posts. Everyone in his watch. One who's willing to stay by his watch and not give up. Number three, they have to watch their own homes as well. So pick people to watch the gates who are living in the city. They're going to stay at their post the whole time. They're not going to take extended lunches of 90 minutes or two hours. They'll take a 20 minute lunch on the job. They're not going to ignore and neglect their own homes because men who are good homeowners and men who have good families tend to be harder workers. Application. Ladies, are you ready? You have been waiting for this. You need to live expecting problems. You need to anticipate that bad things will happen. Worry is a sin, and women might fall to it more than men. But naivety is a sin, and I pray that men would not fall to it. Naivety is saying, oh, that'll never happen. Who says that? Oh, that'll never happen. It's no big deal. That won't happen. The wise man is always looking for dangers. Proverbs 22, verse 3. The prudent man sees the evil and hides himself, but the fool just keeps walking right on. It's the wise man who says, wait, 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 wait. We're in a bad world. We're in a world with cockroaches and a world with snakes. We're in a world with fools and a world with evil, wicked men. And it's getting more wicked. And I got kids. How should we live then? We should live expecting problems in our marriage. We should live expecting problems in our own hearts. When someone rebukes us or talks to us or mentions (coughs) something to us, even if it's in a bad spirit, we should say, thank you. And for a week, we should let it sit in our minds and just test, is that there? Do I need to guard there? Is that that a danger for me? Even if he he says it in a bad way. Even if he says something, you say, well, that can't possibly be true. I can't believe he'd say that. What good is there to respond in a self-defensive way? How much more wisdom to say, okay, fine, thanks, I'll I'll watch that. Yeah, but he didn't give me the honor and respect. You deserve honor and respect. Have you not been reading this month in Psalm 22, verse six, I am a worm? Oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't apply to you. I guess you are some grand lion and all the rest of us are the worms. <clears throat> Number four, verse four. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not built. People had been living there, but the society was not flourishing. Many good men living in a single city will guard it very securely. When good men flourish, societies flourish. And good men never flourish where there are not an environment that allows for women and children to flourish. Because every good man wants family. Which means good men know I've got to make this place safe for a woman and children. And when places are safe for women and children, it's beautiful and peaceful and happy. So he says we've got to develop the city's citizens. There's not many people living in this place. That's a problem. We've got to increase the population. Get them from moving. They're all living on their farms out there. We've got to get them inside this city, building up and developing the city on the inside. Application. Security must be positive as well as negative. Oh, they've got the negative. Shut the gates. Get us someone on on top. It's going to have to be positive as well. Not just stopping the bad guys. What about building up the good guys? One of the best ways to help the church is to build up the little children. One of the best ways to help yourself is to see God and Christ with love and fear and joy. For some years, I've made it my habit every morning to read a poem. I did that years ago. I began it years ago, back in my house in Elam. I read one poem every day, and I've got about six or seven books of poetry. And if you know really good Christian poetry, let me know of it, and I'll pick it up. Or my birthday's coming up in a few months. I try to read good poems because I thought to myself, if I can read good poems, I will have better views of God and better language to use to talk about God. And if I can make myself more amazed with God, I think eventually it will affect my preaching and people won't be bored when I open my mouth. Maybe it will help me in the way I talk to my wife and children. Maybe it will help me when I evangelize. If I read the very best language, if I pick the greatest metaphors from minds like Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley and George Herbert and Frederick Faber, if I can find their best ideas, maybe I'll start picking up their best ideas. And who knows? It's not my goal. But maybe when I die, someone will say, wow, we always had these these perfect pictures or metaphors. If you think that when I die, it's not me. It's from those guys I've been reading. Here's the point. Develop in yourself a fear of God. Pastors, if you will develop in yourself a close walk with God, that might be the best thing you do to help your preaching. And the time you spend fasting and praying in humble confession over your own sin might be the best way to make your sermons cut home. I have often found the weeks that I spend the most time in prayer over myself, people will commonly say, Wow, what a sermon. And I think, But I didn't do a good job in preparation. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe I did prepare when I was praying or confessing, or taking time for my own soul. Build up your faith in Christ, build up your enjoyment of God, build up your knowledge of the word, and it will ultimately have a very strong effect on the society, the group around you. Number five, verse five. And my God put into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the peoples that they might be reckoned by genealogy. There's the point, verse five. What does this have to do with security? Have you noticed the enemies to this point? What are the names of the enemies? There's three of them. We commonly know two. I'm sure you know two. Maybe you've forgotten the third. Can you tell me the two enemies that have attacked Nehemiah throughout? Uh, the Jews. No, two enemies that attack the Jews. Sanban. And Sanballat and Tobiah. What's the third one? Gisham, the Arabian. But it's interesting, the nationalities of each of those men is mentioned. Sanballat, the Horonite. Tobiah, the Ammonite. Gisham, the Arabian. None of them are Jews. Did you know that the Bible speaks very well? The Old Testament speaks very clearly about loving all nations. Can you think of a full book of the Bible in the prophets? The whole point of the book is love the Gentiles. Can you think of a book? Jonah. Jonah. The whole point of the book of Jonah is love the Assyrians. Yes, I know they cut people's heads off and they torture them in iron maidens with spikes in the casket where they close it and they torture their prisoners of war. Yes, I know they hate the Jews and they're trying to destroy your country. Love them, Jonah. Jonah. And why was Jonah a bad attitude missionary? Because he couldn't love those people. He says, I'll be glad to go because I know they won't listen and then you'll crush them. What? They listened? So he's going to go pout. The Old Testament is very clear love all nations. But the Old Testament is very clear do not love all nations. Do not let me. Seven. Verses 1 to 3, do not let people from those nations come into your nation up until the 10th generation. Don't let Moabites in. No, close the door. Not those people. What? I thought Genesis 12: in you all the nations of the earth we blessed. There's God reaching out to all the nations. Ruth and Rahab, they weren't Jews. God loves all people. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the lands. Psalm 2. O you kings. Kiss the sun. God loves all the nations. Yes. God calls the nations stupid. Jeremiah 10 verse 3. What are they? Are they stupid enemies? Whom we should not let into our country up to the 10th generation, Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 139. And have you ever noticed this in the end of the book of Ezra? Ezra chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. They killed 75,000 of their enemies above and beyond. Did I say Ezra? Esther. Esther 9, 15 to 17. They killed 75,000 of their enemies beyond the ones that were threatening their lives. It says it very clearly. So they stopped all their enemies, and then they went further and killed 75,000 more. Now, I'm not attacking that. There's good reasons for it, but my point is this. There is a way in which God has love for all the nations. And he calls out to the nations, come to Israel, look to their laws, see who they are, come know the one true God. And there is another sense in which he says, hey... The Gentiles are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, Where there is no vision from God, the people cast off all their restraint. The people become depraved and defiled. They become animalistic. If you don't have the law of God, you're going to make yourself into an animal-like society. The same kind of society that Jim Elliot and four other missionaries in 1956 Arrived in Ecuador to evangelize. The people were naked. They had no kind of infrastructure. They had no tar roads. They had no commerce. They had no money. They had no schools. And from the book I read, their average life expectancy was under 40. Why? Because they have no hospitals or clinics. And because they murdered each other constantly. They were living like animals. They were savages. But we knew that, didn't we? Because Proverbs 29 told us, if the Bible hasn't come, your people are going to be out of control. But the next part of that verse says, but the one who keeps the law, he will be happy. So does God love all the world? Of course he does. Does God want to guard his people from the world? Of course he does. Here in verse five, Nehemiah makes a genealogy because God put it into his heart. It was God who said, Nehemiah, guard yourself. From whom? From the world. How? Make a genealogy. What's a genealogy? It's a family tree. Oh, go back to Ezra 2. Get a list. Nehemiah gets a list. Well, it's not the same as Ezra, but it's another list. Great. Take that list and start going through Jerusalem and start finding out who's the true Jews. Why would that be important? Do you remember? It's on the same page. Do you remember from last week? Chapter 6, verse 18. Look at chapter 6, verse 18. For there were many of the Jews sworn to Tobiah because he was son-in-law of Shechaniah. Oh, half Jew. And apparently he was not dedicated to the Jews. See, many of these Jews... Because they had intermarried, they were not loyal to the Torah. They were not loyal to the purposes of God to bring Jesus into the world. They were not loyal to the laws that they had been given. They were not loyal to sacrificing. Later, they would become the Samaritans who have their own kind of Torah And their own kind of religion and sacrifices. As we see in John chapter 4. When the woman at the well says. Well our our people we sacrifice over here. But your people sacrifice in Jerusalem. She admits that right there. This was a problem back in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. Do you remember this? When we dealt with those chapters. There was intermarriage. The problem is not if you're black marrying white. The problem is if you're Christian marrying non-believer. And that was the problem. They were not following the Jewish Torah. It's going to happen again in Nehemiah 13. It is a big problem, it's constantly threatening the people of God. We want no intermarriage, if intermarriage means marrying outside the faith. We know it doesn't mean skin color, because of who? Rahab and and Solomon's wife, which some commentators think meant dark skin, my love is dark and comely, Song of Solomon chapter one. The point is, Nehemiah says, let's make a genealogy just to find out who the faithful ones are. We can't prove your heart from this, but we're gonna try. We're gonna do what we can to guard ourselves. What can we do? How can we apply this to our lives today? We need to guard ourselves from worldly influences. We need to guard ourselves From influences that would pull us back to darkness. That's what we need to guard ourselves from. We love the world in all the ways that do not pull us into the world. You know how to do that. It means it's not a problem at all to invite a sinner to your house to befriend him and be kind and loving and gracious. But you don't want to go with the sinner to the sinner's entertainments that are filled with worldliness. Well, the sinner loves nudity and immorality, and the sinner loves drunkenness, and the sinner loves money. Well, then don't go with him to his entertainments where those things will be, those fires will be stoked in your heart. Now it's very dangerous because. Of modern technology, that entertainment can be brought into our homes and into our pockets. And even if you say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go out to Ocean Basket to have dinner. They put screens in every place. It's not necessarily bad to see a screen. But if you go one time to eat, you see if you can go one time and you don't find something, some kind of worldly temptation that you wish your husband or your kids didn't see. Brothers and sisters, we need to guard ourselves. After success, after you've been born again, guard yourself. After spiritual victory, after answers to prayer, after a good Sunday, guard yourself for Monday. After marriage, guard yourself. After kids have grown, guard yourself. Security must be maintained. Satan's very patient. And your sin nature is constantly beating at, the, at the, 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 the wall that is holding out the flood. May God give us grace to guard ourselves as Nehemiah put in place these preparations for Jerusalem. Father, we pray that we would be wise, that we would guard our souls and our hearts and our lives. We pray that we would not be foolish. We pray that you would keep us from sin Deliver us from temptation and from the evil one. Pray that you'd help us all to hate sin and to love righteousness this week. In Jesus' name, amen.